God will make you rich. Pretty much every week, there are thousands and thousands, conservatively thousands and thousands and thousands of people who go to church uh, waiting to hear that message, that God will make them rich. You know, one version of that is sometimes called the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel. Uh, basically, the idea that if you, if you give God his cut first, uh, then God will always make sure that you are healthy and wealthy and happy. And that, that version of, that, of, of God will make you rich is a false gospel. Uh, it is a is a false gospel. It's a prosperity gospel that has impoverished the church. It is something that began in the United States and has now been exported all over the world, and it is a plague on global Christianity. It's people who who are thinking they're thinking that that I will give to God in a very mercenary way, so that God will then pay me back. The the, the spirit is mercenary. The God is money. Those people evidently have not read 2 Corinthians, where we see that Paul suffered and was afflicted so that he would be able to bring the gospel to the churches. They don't understand that Jesus Christ gave up his heavenly riches so that he might bring us to salvation. They miss the point of the gospel. Christ, the righteous one, did not die for the unrighteous to bring us into health, wealth, and happiness. He died to bring us to God. So we, we, need, we should know that. We should know that, that that false gospel is not true. That God got you, it is not that you would take your 10% or that you would give your cut or that you would sow your seed and God would guarantee to you health, wealth, and happiness. What I want to do today is preach to you the true gospel. And one way of summarizing the true gospel is God will make you rich. God will make you rich. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 6, that he he is counted as poor, yet making many rich. He is counted as having nothing, yet possessing everything. Jesus Christ himself uh, gave up. He was impoverished. He gave up his heavenly glory and was impoverished and came and died for us that we might become rich with the righteousness of himself, of his own righteousness before God. God God will make you rich at the at the at the 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 cost, the, the possibility of being misunderstood, I don't want to, I will not surrender to a false gospel, the words rich or prosperity or any other idea that God is going to be generous with us. So what we need to understand is what, what does it mean to be rich? And why does God make us rich? Why does God even make us rich with material possessions? The reality is that, that God makes us rich so that we will be generous to, to multiply thanksgiving to God for God's glory. Today we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 8, 2 Corinthians 8. Uh, we're going to get to God will make you rich in a few minutes. Uh, on our way there, that we want to look at verses in chapter 8, what I call the administration interlude. 
okay? Administration interlude. It's just, it's kind of what Paul does is he's talking in, in chapter 8, the first part of chapter 8, about motivations for giving. And then later on in chapter 9, he's going to talk about motivations for giving. In the, in the middle, in this middle section, he is talking about how he is going to be using this money and how to, how to handle this money and how to administrate this money. And it's not disconnected from what we're looking at. It's not disconnected from what we saw in chapter 8 last week. It's not disconnected from chapter 9. So let's, let's look at it and let's try and understand what it looks like. What, what he is trying to do. So picking up in uh, 2 Corinthians 8, starting in verse 16, we'll read all the way into chapter 9 to verse 5. It says, But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going, uh, going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and our boasting about you to these men. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it might be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. One of the things just overall I want you to see in this, in this section is just the, the gift of administration that God gives to the church. Uh, when, when God, got, the, the church is a, is a family and it also has elements of an organization and it requires people who can give leadership and organization and administration. When God gives to the church gifts of administration. On the one hand, when we think about, when we think about the church, the, the mission, the methods, the culture of a church is different from a business. But at the same time, we still, the church still finds value in people who are executives and managers and administrators. And so Paul has a, a simple plan that he executes that is, that is, that is uh, set for this collection for the poor in Jerusalem. With, without, that, without that gift, without that ability, without that, that work of administration and planning, there would be no gift to Jerusalem. There would be no gift for the poor. There would be no helping the poor without this ability of administration. So I, I just want you to see that that's something that's valuable. So while we, while we value the preaching of the gospel, we value many other gifts, we, we value the gift of administration. That's an important point. And you can sit, kind of see in the particulars how that works out. So he talks about Titus. Titus is a, is a man who is trusted. He's, he's Paul's fellow worker. And he says, he says about Titus, Titus is, is this example to the, 
uh, to the Corinthians about how they're supposed to give. So Titus, Titus, God put it into Titus' heart the same way in chapter 8. Paul had said about the Macedonians, God, God gave this grace to the Macedonians that they were begging to give for the poor in Jerusalem. And here is Titus. He, it, is, it is in his heart. This is one of the ways that we, we think about how do we, how do we take direction in our lives about doing what is good. Well, whenever something is, when we, ever, we have a desire for a work and it's a good work and it's a, it's a, it's a work that we have an opportunity for and it's a, it's a work that we are qualified for, well, well, then we ought to move toward that work. That's the work that Titus has. Titus has that work, and he is willing to do it of his own accord. Nobody, Paul didn't command Titus to go help. Paul didn't have to have a sit down with, with Titus and, and talk to him, uh, have a real heart-to-heart with him to try to try, you know, go back to those Corinthians people. I really need you to do this. Instead, what Titus is ready to do is he is ready and willing, and he is, he is wanting to do this work. He's setting the example for what he wants, for what Paul wants the Corinthians to do. That is, they, he wants them to want to give, to want to be generous, to want to take up this collection, to want to do this good for the church uh, that is in Jerusalem. He also has uh, these two other men. There is uh, one unnamed brother who is famous for preaching the gospel. That's something to aspire to. That's something to, to recognize. That's a, that's a good description, be an unnamed brother who is famous for preaching the gospel. He also has another man who has that, that, that has their confidence. The, the church is confident in this man. He, is, he has proven himself. He's been tested. Uh, that, is a, that is a pattern for the church, and it's also something that we ought to aspire to, something we, we ought to want. We, we ought to be a person who is trustworthy. And so what, what Paul's plan is is that he would have these three men, these three men that are, that are uh, Paul's co-worker, Paul's fellow worker, and these men who are trusted by the church, they're going to be the ones who are going to administra- uh, administrate these funds. They're going to be the ones who are taking care of it. And it's, a, it's a good plan. It's, a good, it's good. It, it, it includes character. It, inclu- it includes planning. That's the way we ought to be thinking. God, God does great works in and through people, not contrary to means, but through means through gifts like this, through plans like this. Now then, I want you to focus in on one thing here on verse 21. Paul says, For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. On the one hand, Paul does not fear man. That is, he's not, he's not taking the temperature of the people and then deciding, hey, this is what's right and this is what's wrong. He, he is ultimately a servant of the Lord, and he is ultimately aiming to please God. That doesn't mean that he never cares about what people think. He is trying to, in every way, conduct himself in a way that is trustworthy, that encourages people, that urges people, that wins people's trustworth, that wins people's trust. So he says, we want to do what is honorable before God and honorable before man. You know, what Paul has uh, undeservedly been looked at by the Corinthians with a very, with a very cynical, critical eye. But that's not Paul's fault. And I think we ought to do the same thing where, where we know that there are going to be times where Christians are looked at by outsiders or even by other people professing to be Christians, they're going to be looked at with a very critical, cynical eye. And yet there shouldn't be anything in us that deserves that. Instead, Paul is trying to live a life that is above reproach, 
that, that, is above, that, that has not done anything that is blameworthy. And I, I want to, I want to, I already mentioned the, the prosperity gospel, and I, I kind of don't want this message to be uh, polemical or against anything. I kind of want it to be about the, the positive, uh, what the positive action that is called for here. Uh, and yet, I want you to recognize that, that those who are prosperity preachers have not done what is honorable before God or before men. They have, uh, they have in addition to teaching false doctrine, they have lived lavish, self-indulgent lifestyles that even unbelievers recognize as inappropriate for somebody who is professing faith in Jesus Christ that is, that is claiming to be a worshiper of God. They've made it, and what they have heart, the reason why I say that prosperity preachers have impoverished the church is because in doing that, They've made it much harder. They, the job that I have today to preach to you about being a generous giver is harder because of false teaching. It's harder because of men who have not lived honorably. When we talk about giving, we never talk about giving so that we can be, we as pastors or as a church can be enriched at your expense. We want you to learn to give for God's glory, for the sake of the poor, for the gospel, and even for your own benefit, that you would learn to be someone who is a generous giver, even as God himself is one who gives. It's for your own benefit. That's why we talk about giving. Well, it goes on, it's not only administration on, on Paul's part, it's also administration on the Corinthians' part. He's saying to them, hey, I, I, I stirred up the Macedonians because I, I knew that you were ready to give. Now I've talked to you about what the Macedonians did in order to stir you up to give. And now it's time for you to get ready. Because uh, when I come, I don't want it to be as an exaction. I don't want to be compelling you. I don't want to be arm twisting. I don't want to be, be pressing on you to get this collection together. Instead, I want you to have it ready so it can be a willing gift. You know, administration is not just on the front end. It's also on the back end. It's not only that, that those who are taking care of the money have to administrate the money, but everybody has to plan to give. If you don't plan to give, you won't have anything to give. When Paul talks to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16, he says, week by week, as God prospers you, set some aside. You have to plan to give in order to be able to give. If you don't, then you won't. Well, that is the administration interlude. And we can kind of see there how Paul is leading into this whole idea, this whole, this, this picture there that overarches both chapters is that this is something that should be, should be willing, something that you should want to do. Nobody's, nobody's going to tax you. Nobody's going nobody's to pressure you. Nobody's going to penalize you for not giving. But, but you ought to want to give. All right, so now we move into the next part where, where uh, Paul says that God will make you rich. God will make you rich. Let's read verse 6 to start with. He says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, when you first look at that, it sounds like the person who gives more will be given more. And in actuality, what it means is the person who gives more will be given more. Because what it means is that the person who gives more will be given more. I, I, I you know, 
I, I think uh, I, I, one of the things I did was, was I went back and I read older writers on this, on this passage. I, I, the, the, the modern conception, the, the modern conception of, of giving is, or, or this, this, uh, the false doctrine that is in the air all around us is, makes, it, makes it so hard to talk about, but all of the older writers, they all understood it this way. And I think, I think this, is, this is basic, is that basically if you, if you give more, you're not going to be impoverished by your giving. Instead, when you give, God is going to give you more. Just think about the way it looks. It, what, it, what does it look like when the farmer goes out and he starts to scatter seed? But it, so, it looks like he is taking what he could be eating and wasting it on the ground. But what a farmer knows is that the more you sow, the more you reap. And the, the wisdom of God in Proverbs uh, supports this. This is Proverbs nineteen seventeen. You can listen carefully. He says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. And he, that is the Lord, will repay him for his deed. God, God pays back and he doesn't pay back uh, small. He multiplies what you, what you give. Of course, Paul doesn't just talk about uh, giving more and then being given more, he also talks about those who give little. If you don't sow so very much, you won't have much. If you don't give much, you won't have much. Some of you wonder. Well, some of you, some of you, your plan is, your plan is, is that we will start to give when we have more to give. The reality is, is that you don't have anything to give because you don't give. You think when we have more to give, then we'll start giving. The reality is you don't have anything to give because you don't give. This, again, is supported with the wisdom of, of Proverbs. He says, one gives freely, yet grows all the richer. They keep get, one, one keeps giving away, and they keeps getting more and more. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. You suffer want. You suffer want. You suffer not having enough because you withhold what you ought to give. Let's just face reality. If you don't give, then you're a fool. You're a fool who is, who is not going to have enough, not enough. The, the person who is always trying to hold on to what is theirs is never going to have enough. And so if, if you want to know, if you want to know what it is to have enough, if you want to avoid suffering want, you're, you're a fool if you don't give. If you give, you will always have some for, to take care of your own needs and to give, but if you don't give, you will always be suffering want. Well, the rest of the, the, rest of the verses 7 through 11 is really expanding on this verse 6 explaining what Paul means. And so we don't want to just stop there. We want to try and understand better. And so look at verse 7. He says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So verse 7, he says, Each, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. In his heart, lots of times people will want to know, how, how much should I give? I want to know how much I should give. I, I want to know. I want to know how much I should give. And while we saw last week that there's a principle of giving in proportion to what we have, there is no, there is no set amount. There is no limit. 
All of it belongs to God. There is, there is, the, there is the matter of, of trying to look at what you have in, in looking at other, the example of other people, listening to the counsel of other people, listening to, to what the whole scriptures say. But there is, there is no limit. There is no, well, this part is mine. This belongs to God. There, there is, this is what God has given me to take care of myself. And then there is what God has given me to give away to others. But there is always this matter of stewardship of all this belongs to God. And so each one has to, they have to, you have to look at your own income. You have to look at what the Bible says. You have to pray. Then you have to decide in your heart how much to give. And then you have to, you must give. And he says you must give uh, not reluctantly or under compulsion. That is, don't, don't give as if, as if you really didn't want to give. And not only that, but, but there, there is no sense in which I can, I, I should be. There, there is no sense in which I should be compelling you or forcing you or, or, or penalizing you. We, we can see that Paul can, Paul can try to be, can he, he can bring some heavy uh, weight persuasion to why you should give. But he never says, hey, I, I need an exaction. I need to, to pull it out of you. And I even think, think about what, where Paul's confidence is here. Look at how much confidence Paul has in the spirit-renewed heart of believers. Paul's expectation is, is that a person who has the spirit, who has been born again, who has been made new by the spirit of God, is going to want to. They are going to decide in their heart. They are going to decide for themselves. They are going to look at all that they have, and they're going to look at all the need, and they're going to look at all that, all that is possible, and they're going to want to give. And he says, not, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. On, on the one hand, we could say maybe if you don't want to give reluct, if you only want to give reluctantly, maybe you ought not give. I think the point is rather though that we ought to want to give because God loves someone who gives cheerfully, someone who gives with gladness, who wants to give. Think about the Macedonian example of how they begged to be a part of it. Paul looked at these poor people and said. You guys, I'm not expecting much out of you. I'm, I, I, I'm not even sure that I, I'm not even sure that I'm going to ask you. But they are begging for the opportunity to give. Paul says that that was a grace of God. That was the grace of God at work in their hearts. God expects. Uh, Paul expects that God is going to work in people's hearts, so that you can you can entrust the Spirit of God to determine how much people are going to give without going and collecting everybody's income taxes and finding out how much they how much they need to give you you decide each one of you each one of you we are doing this as a church but each one of you has to decide for themselves to what to give what to give cheerfully and then look at verses 8 through 10 says and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Look, look at verse 8. And he says, God is able to make all grace abound to you. All 
He is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every or, or all good work. God, God, makes, God is going to make sure that you have enough. What, one of the reasons why people don't give is they're afraid that they are going to not have enough. I mean, I think it's right to be prudent, but there is also this wrong-headedness about this rationing idea that we seem to think that we, we need, that, that we, we, need, we have given, been given this very small amount that we then need to ration over a very long time. And that's not, what, that's not what God is saying. God is saying that he is going to give you all sufficiency for everything that you need at all times. For every, everything, abounding in every good work. And, and that even brings us, that fills out what it means, what it looks like to, to receive or to, to reap bountifully. It is to abound in every good work. It is to have an abundance of good works. Take, take your money and your possessions and take them and make the God, God intends for them to be used to abound in every good work. Every good work that you could possibly think of. All good works, taking care of the poor, taking care of other people, seeing the gospel go out, sharing with other people in the church, sharing the, in the common life of the church, abounding in every good work. And he even backs that up with a, with a quotation from uh, Psalm 112. I encourage you to go and maybe in your free time, you want to put this down in your notes, Psalm 112, go read Psalm 12 in its entirety. Look at what he says, he, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now when you read that as it's quoted there, who do you think the he is? Well, I always thought the he was God. You go back and you read Psalm 112, and it's not, it's not, it's the, the he is not God. The he is the righteous man who fears God. And he talks about how this man has, has riches and wealth in his house, but he's always giving to the poor. He always, he, he, his, he, God, is, God is blessing his house. He's always giving to the poor. He, he doesn't fear any, any bad thing. He doesn't fear anything that's going to happen. Instead, his, his righteousness, the, the, the things that he is doing, his righteousness endures forever. And I think the, the righteousness to talk about here is this, what we might think of as practical righteousness, righteous deeds. We could say that this man is storing up treasure in heaven. God is, God is giving to him, and he is storing up more and more in heaven. God, God keeps giving him material riches, and he keeps turning them into spiritual blessings. And you see there in verse 10, he, he talks about he who supplies seed to the sower. I think he's going back to the, the, the guy in Psalm 112, the man. The man who has, he, he has this seed. Even when we think about giving to God and God giving us more, we should recognize that even what we, the small amount that we give, even that is from God. That consider, consider all the giving that God does. God gives people grace that motivates them to give. And when they give, God responds to their giving by multiplying their, their generosity, multiplying what is given back to them so that they would be able to give more and more. God gives and gives and gives and gives and gives so that we would learn to give, so that we would give. It says, who, who supplies seed to the sower? He's giving, he's giving bread for food. He's, he's going to supply and multiply your seed for sowing. He's going he's to give you more and more so that you would take your riches and your wealth and then, and then give it for more and more blessing to other people, more and more giving to other people, more and more generosity. 
that harvest of righteousness is a harvest of righteous deeds, a multiplication of righteous deeds, righteous goodness. You, you, are, you are always given enough. He even says all sufficiency. That means that you are, you are going to be given enough for you. Like the people in the wilderness, the people of Israel who were walking through the wilderness, there was, there was always enough. He was teaching his people, there will always be enough. I will give you more every day. So he's saying, saying here, I will keep giving you more. I will give you more than enough. I will give you enough for your needs, and I will give you enough to abound in every good deed, every good work. I will give you enough for your needs, and I will give you so that you will have a harvest of righteousness, a harvest of righteous deeds. You're never going to lack enough to keep doing good. You can keep doing good. You, the fear is, is that if I give, if I, if I give, if I do good, if, I, if, I am, if I'm giving it all away, then I'm never going to have enough. And God is saying, you're never going to give to the point that you're never going to have enough. You give and God gives more so that you can keep on giving. Finally, look at verse 11. He says, you will be enriched. In every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Do you see why I said God will make you rich? It says in verse 11, you will be enriched. That's, uh, that's what's called the divine passive. God is understood to be the one who is, who is uh, doing the giving. He says, you will be enriched. God will make you rich. God will give you enough for your needs. He will give you daily bread. And not only will he give you daily bread, he will give you enough to be generous with other people. He says God will, God will enrich you in every way. God not only intends to enrich you materially, he intends to enrich you spiritually. One of the reasons why I want so many of you to, to give and to begin giving and to begin giving generously is because I want you to be enriched. I want, I, want, I want the grip of greed and covetousness and anxiety to be released. You, 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 when, you, when you don't give, it is because you are worshiping an idol. When you are fearful about not having enough, you are anxious, you are fearful because you, you are loving money, when you are holding on to it, when you are coveting it, it's because you love money. To release it is to put that sin to death. To give away money is to crucify the God of greed and covetousness and anxiety. Enrich you in every way. To be generous in every way. You know, he wants you to give, give in every way. You know, he's talking here about specifically about giving to the poor in Jerusalem. But it's the, the, the giving of God, the giving that God intends for us to do is multidirectional. There's not just one thing that we do with God's money. We do all kinds of things with God's money. So that, that requires a heart that is generous, a heart that is ready to give and give and give. Man, it's really, it's really, 
I just feel, uh, maybe it's just me, I just feel the tension when, when you talk about this. Feel the tension because, man, it's your money. I mean, I'm giving to, we're all giving. And, and we all have needs and we all have wants and we all have, have even enjoy, when saying all these things, it doesn't mean that we're not to enjoy good things. But what is abundance for? What does God give us riches for? You know, at the end of, of the, the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12, says that the rich man, he, he stored up treasure for himself and was not rich toward God. Why does God give us an abundance? Why does God give us riches? He gives us riches so that we would be rich toward God. First Timothy 6, Paul talks about the rich. There are people in the church who are rich. What should they, what should they be doing? They should be rich in good works. This is the difference. This is the difference between being rich, giving God a cut so that I can become rich and so that I can build up myself and I can treasure up things for myself. The difference is, is that the rich man, the godly rich man, the righteous rich, takes their riches and they abound in every good work. They take their riches and they harvest a, a, a harvest of righteous deeds. They are rich toward God. They are rich in good works. That's what we ought to be pursuing. Let us be rich toward God. Let us be rich in good works. Let us be rich and abound in every good work. Well, the last part here we see is thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Pick up in verse 13. He says, well, actually, actually verse, I'm sorry, verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. You see there, God, God will make you rich, and that produces, through, through us, that produces thanksgiving to God. One of, one of our goals would, should be to take our capital and invest it in a thanksgiving factory because that's what, that is what we are doing. We are taking what God has given us, the, the capital that God has given us, the money and possessions that God has given us, and we are investing it in the thanksgivings of other people. When we give good things to other people, they thank God. They thank God. And that glorifies God. And that's the point of everything. That's the chief end of man. That is the main goal of humanity. That is the, the main goal. That is the, that is the happiness. That is the cheerfulness in our giving is that it might in some way glorify God. He says, by their approval of this service, they, they glorify God. Because of your submission. Because you, you lowered yourself in some way. You, you submitted to God's call. You in, you gave in a way that is consistent with your confession of the gospel of Christ. That's what giving is, is, is something that it is in every way consistent. 
for us to give because God has given to us. God, God forgave us of our sins, so we forgive others. God first loved us, so we love others. God gave his son, so we give to others. This is, this is the only action that is consistent. Stinginess is not consistent with the giving of God. Covetousness is not consistent with the giving of God. Greed is not consistent with the giving of God. Giving generously is consistent with the generous grace of God. He says that this generation of your contribution for them and for all others, we're, we're giving, we're, we're, there are going to be lots of things to give for. They're going to be giving for the poor. There's going to be giving for the common need of the church. They're going to be giving for, for people to go and spread the gospel to other people. They're, there's giving, giving in all these ways, giving to them, to all others. And this is one of the things that giving does. Giving unites people together. While they long for you and pray for you. You give to them and they're going to pray for you. That's not a bad exchange. I know we think it's a bad exchange. It's not a bad exchange. For them to give to the church in Jerusalem and for Jerusalem to pray for them feels like a bad exchange only if you value money more than prayer. That's not a bad exchange. And he says, and, and there is, they, they long for you. I, I don't, when, when you give to, to the church or even to, to any other person, it, is, it has this unifying effect. This binding effect, family share. People in other organizations, clubs, they don't always share. People in family share. This is the household of God, the church. And so when you give, you are contributing to something that binds us together. Sometimes people aren't excited about the church. If you start to give, you'll start to care about what the church does. You'll start to be excited about church. And he says, because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, that you would, the surpassing grace, all, all through chapters 8 and 9, there has been this grace. We are administering this grace. There was this grace given to Macedonia. There is this, I want you to excel in this grace. This is the grace of God to you. The grace of God is going to cause everything to abound for you. Grace, grace coming to you. Grace, and, and when they give thanks to God, they are giving thanks because of God's grace in you. God's, God's grace is the primary, it is the ultimate, efficient cause of giving. God gives, so we give. And then even when we give, God gives more. And then we give more, and God keeps giving and giving and giving. Even to the point where in verse 15, he says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. There is, there is no way of talking about how great this gift is that God has given this is God's gift. This is God's gift to work grace in you, to cause you to come to know Jesus Christ. It is God's grace in you to work in you generosity. It is God's grace. It is God's grace in you. It is his gift to you to, to give to you. It is his gift to you to give you seed for sowing. It is his gift to respond to your sowing with a bountiful harvest. It is his gift to you that you would be able to give to others and so abound in every good work and abound in a harvest of righteousness. God, God keeps giving and giving, and giving. And of course, the ultimate cannot be far from the mind of Paul, which he just mentioned in chapter 8. That is that Jesus Christ was given for us. He who was rich 
became poor for our sakes so that in him we might become rich. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The story, the gospel is that Jesus Christ, who was rich with every every heavenly treasure, gave up heavenly riches to become impoverished for us. To die in our place, to be obedient even to the point of death on a cross. So that we might be rich. We might be rich in the righteousness of God. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. God is the source. Never fear that the fountain of all blessings, the fountain of all giving is ever going to run out. God is never going to run out of things to give. He has given you righteousness. He has given you the spirit. He has given you material things. He has given you material things so that you can in some way, like, like spinning wheat into gold, you can spin material blessings into spiritual blessings you can take things that are now and you can store up treasure for heaven you can be rich in good works so give that's that's what paul's saying each one has to give must give as he's decided in his own heart but let your let let by the grace of god let the grace of god work in you may the grace of god work in you that you would release, that you would no longer worship money, but instead that you would learn to be generous. You would be generous with all that you have for God's glory, that many might give thanks to God. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, uh, thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you for the inexpressible gift of one who was inexpressibly pure, inexpressibly righteous, perfectly obedient, lacking in no uh, good quality, beautiful in every way, filled with all righteousness and all purity and all innocence and all that is good. One to whom belonged all glory and all riches and all honor, both in this time and forevermore. And yet he became poor for us. Please grant that we would, we would trust in him. And know that there is never a day that we will go without our daily bread. And we will never lack in sufficiency. We will never lack in what we need to do every good work. To have a harvest of righteous deeds. Grant that through, uh, through your spirit working in us. That there would be a continuing harvest of righteous deeds in our lives. That we would abound in every good work. That we would keep being generous. That, that as you give to us we would keep on giving. We thank you for this inexpressible gift. You are the source of all things. We praise you. Jesus' name we pray. Amen.